We are continuing in, in Deuteronomy, and um, today we're going to be in chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 and verse 25. We're also going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 23, uh, verses 20 through 24, 31 through 33. All of that will come back up. You can start turning there now if you want to. But before we get into the text, um, you, and like I said, you start getting there now because when I say go, we're going to go. All right. So, but before we go there, um, the title of my sermon this morning is He Meant That Thing. Now, I don't normally title my sermons because I'm not, uh, that's not my gift. But when I was preparing the sermon this week and and writing it yesterday, the thing that I felt um, was that it needed something. It needed a way to capture very quickly and in a way that hopefully is memorable um, what the thrust of this message is going to be about today. And today we're going to talk about idolatry. Um, He meant that thing. And you have to say it like that. You can't say he meant that thing. You have to, he meant that thing. So um, idolatry, it's something that I, we don't really take it very seriously um, anymore. Not, not as seriously as I think we should. I think that it's probably fair to say that most Christians uh, don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about idolatry. We know that it was something that was a problem for the Israelites, but since we don't readily worship statues, it's just not one of the things that, that is pressing on our mind. And so we kind of miss what the contemporary significance is. So those of us who do use the language of idolatry, well, you'll, we might say, um, you know, I, I realize that, um, you know, I was making marriage an idol in my life, or I was, I was making a career an idol in my life, right? So, and we, we'll talk about it like that. But even, even when we do that, the relaxed way that we talk about this shows that we don't really get uh, how serious God takes this. It betrays the fact that we don't get the severity of this sin. Um, I loved when Pastor David preached last week, and he talked about how um, a lot of us, one approach to the Old Testament, and we kind of think of the law as, oh, that was then. We don't have to worry about that now because Jesus. That's how we think about idolatry. Oh, that's something that they dealt with, but we, you know, but Jesus. And so now we're kind of okay. But that is just not quite true. When I was studying this and, and just reading this and, and listening and to what the God was saying to me, he meant that thing. The same kinds of, of, of punishment, the same harsh words that we find in the Old Testament when God talks about idolatry, he hates idolatry. It's not that he hated it. He hates idolatry. He meant that thing. And so I want to flesh that out um, and what that means for us, because we don't worship statues. Although, I dare say, uh, our little TVs and cell phones and, you know, we, we come real close to having actual physical idols. But I want to talk today about what this looks like for us. And so we'll go ahead and get into the text. Um, if you haven't already turned, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And beginning with verse 1. It reads, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and, have, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. 
Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Skipping to verse 25, it continues. The images of their gods you are not to burn. You are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it for it is detestable to the Lord your God. So now turning to chapter 12, verse 31 reads, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And now finally, um, if you can turn to Exodus 23, I'm going to read verses 20 through 24 and then 31 through 33. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones into pieces. I will establish your border from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert of the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. This is the word of God. So the verses that we are, are reading today um, relate to God's policy of harem. I did not pronounce that properly, but pretend like I did. Uh, this word is difficult to translate uh, into English, but uh, it's typically understood to mean destruction or devotion. And one way that it's often translated is devoted to destruction. It was a policy of totally and utterly destroying the inhabitants, including women and children often, um, and, and livestock of the land that God would call people into and to destroy their possessions. In the earlier part of chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2 that I read, Moses lays out God's commands concerning how the people are to deal with the inhabitants of the land. And he tells them um, that they are to totally destroy them. And in verse 2, he says, don't even show them mercy. Now, this destruction, it's described very clearly in chapter 7 and in chapter 20, and it's something that the church um, often either ignores completely, unable to reconcile how a loving God could give such a command, or too easily accepts, I think because of just plain out bloodlust. We like the image of it. And if, and if you um, don't know, it's verses like these that have been used to justify holy wars throughout history. God told us that this is ours, and so we will just annihilate anyone who gets in our way. It was used to underline the, the, the manifest destiny as people came into this land to say, oh, these people who already live here, no, God gave us this land so we can just commit genocide. 
But neither of these reactions, either ignoring it or accepting it without question, neither of these are an acceptable way to interact with these texts. Neither of these is a sufficient response. Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for instruction. And so you can't just ignore whole chunks of scripture because they don't rub you the right way. And in the same way, you shouldn't ignore whole chunks of scripture because uh, this doesn't sit well, but I don't really want to ask God questions. You shouldn't just blindly accept passages because, hey, well, if God said it, then yes, Absolutely. But also you get to ask some questions. You should wrestle with texts that are difficult. It should rub you the wrong way when you read something about going into a land and utterly destroying it. And God is big enough to handle your questions. And so if we believe that scripture, all scripture is God breathed, if we really believe that all of it is useful, then our posture ought to be God. What are you saying to me in this? What should I be learning through this? I feel really confident that what God wants us to learn from this is not go into land and wipe out whole swaths of people. I feel really, really secure in saying that. I could be wrong, and I'll find out on the other side of glory, but I feel like there's a good foundation to say that's not what we should take away from the text. Um, There's a theologian by the name of Daniel Block. He wrote the the commentary on this book for the New International Version um, commentary series. And he argues that one way to reconcile these texts um, is to read them, uh, to focus on the genre of the writing. So rather than interpreting the book as legislation, he argues that we should read it as rhetoric. And so noting the similarity between Deuteronomy chapter 7 and the the passage from Exodus that that I read to you, he writes... Although Exodus 23, 20 through 33 obviously underlines this chapter, a comparison of the two texts reveals the difference between law and legislation. The stamp of rhetorical oration is most evident in the elements that are not found in the Exodus passage. In other words, Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33 is to Deuteronomy 7 what the text of Scripture is to a sermon. The latter draws out the significance of the former. That last part is important. This is a way that we can understand this text. Just like I today am having, I have scripture. We just read scripture and now I'm preaching a sermon. The point of the sermon is not the word of God. The point of the sermon is to kind of draw out the truth of what God is saying through these texts, what God said to me in these texts as I studied. And so that is what Daniel Block says is a way to read these that we know that God gave law to Moses and he told them, go into the land. And he said that I'm going to do this. And you hear it. It sounds a little bit different in Exodus. And so when we get to these passages, um, we should see them as Moses adding um, rhetorical flair. I want to put an emphasis, a period, an exclamation mark on how important this is. I struggle. I struggle very much with the violence of these texts. I remember having a conversation with um, my brother at one point who is not quite saved yet. Um, Pray for him when you think about it. Um, And we were just talking about, you know, he was at church one day and God bless the pastor, but he was preaching from the Old Testament and he's talking about going into the land and destroy all the livestock, kill the women and children too. And my brother is sitting there like, you are way too excited about that. Like that does not feel like God. What is that? The horses? Why, like, why did the horses have to die? What did they do? I struggle. 
And I told him as he talked to me about it, like, what is that about, Michelle? I said, you know, it's hard. There are parts of the Bible that are hard. I wrestle with this. I struggle. And that's okay. That's okay. I am inclined to, to go with Daniel Block. I'm inclined to view this rhetorically. And if that's the case, then what I take from this is that God meant that thing. When he says, I hate idolatry, when he says it is detestable to me, he meant it. And if he meant it then, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, he means it today. So we need to care. The next time you feel like saying to your friend, I think I've been making a career idolatry, you should be on your face. (laughs) That's not a relaxed, casual thing that we should just toss out. He meant that thing. So what is idolatry? It's ascribing ultimate power, ultimate authority to anything that is not the Lord. And see, that's, that's a, a definition that if, if you just, if you hear it immediately, you might think, well, I don't, you know, I think I feel like I'm good. But I bet if all of us, if we just sat for a good five minutes in silence, we'd be able to think about some things that we have ascribed ultimate power and ultimate authority in our lives. And this is how you can test it. When something happens in your life, where's the first place you go? What's the first thought that you have? I bet for some of us, the first thing that we do when we feel stress, when we feel tension, when we feel, when we hear bad news, something that devastates us to no end, we will turn to entertainment. Because we just need to, to feel better. We just need to, I need, I, oh, I can't, I can't deal with it. Let me tell you now, that's evidence that entertainment is an idol in your life. When you feel pinched, what's the first thing that you think about? If things get tight, do you think, I need to pray? I need to turn to God who is my provider? Or do you think, I need a better job? I need to save better. If that's the case, if the latter is the case, then money is an idol in your life. Anything that you have elevated to a place where it can bring you comfort, where you think it will meet your needs, where it is the thing you go to when you need something, that's an idol in your life, and God hates that. It is detestable to him, and he meant that thing. The worship of idols in the Old Testament was for the purpose of getting certain things, to having your needs met. It was a way of saying, there's my God, I'm going to go to it, and that statue will meet my needs. And those idols made requirements, they made demands. If You need to have a child. You want fertility in your life. There was a fertility God that you could go to. There was an idol complete with rituals that you need to follow in order to have that need met. Our idols demand things of us. If you find yourself constantly having no time, but never praying or reading your Bible, your idol is requiring things of you. It is making demands, and so you might want to look at the rituals in your life. It's easy to think, well, I don't go to any shrines. I don't have any altars in my house. That's not my thing. The place that you run when you need something, the things that you do when you want something, those are your idols. Those are your rituals, and you are worshiping them. God detests that, and he meant that thing. So let's look a little more closely at these specific verses. 
In verse 25, um, Moses commands the people not to even covet the materials that the idols were made out of. He says that you're going to go into this land and then you utterly destroy these idols and don't covet the silver and the gold. There are a couple of things that, that stood out to me um, when reading them. The first is that it demonstrates, once again, how, how vile and how detestable this was to God. I don't even want you to touch, to have, to keep, to desire the metal, the materials that these idols were made out of. But it also speaks to the power. See, in other passages, when God talks to the people and says, look, don't, he says, don't even take any of it into your home. I don't want you to have it because he knew that it would do two things. One, it would witness to the outside world that, oh, wait, they're just like us. And the whole purpose, the whole reason for calling the children of Israel was to have a people set apart. The whole reason that you and I have been grafted into that family is because we are a people set apart to witness, to point people into the, the direction of God. And so he didn't want us to have anything to do with it. Don't, don't bring it into your home. Don't, covet don't even desire the materials but it also says something to me about the power that those things have i mentioned our little devices the things that we like to look at i so often right a tablet is just a tablet it's just you know it's what you do with it that's our we like that we use it for guns a gun is just a gun it just who it depends on what somebody does with it my brother hates when i say that too he loves guns so Pray for him when y'all think about it. Um, <laughs> but, but I would like to say, I don't think that the, even the things that we touch and hold, I don't think that they're innocuous. We decided to move the screen over here instead of having it here. If you've been coming for a while, you know that it used to sit right here in the middle. And so you come in and you stare at the screen. The cross would be over to the side. That says something, right? That's not innocuous, God said, don't even take it into your home. Now, I'm not saying get rid of your cell phone. So don't walk away and say, well, my pastor said I can't have a TV. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying this, though. If that technology has become your idol, then perhaps you do need to get rid of your cell phone. It's not innocuous. So it wouldn't be as simple as saying, well, this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from YouTube or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, oh, I'm going to stop being on social media. No, if, your devi- if the thing that has become an idol for you is social media and the device that you use when you perform your ritual of worshiping social media is your little phone, then get a dumb phone. They still make them. The little cricket phones for old people, go get one of those and you can make your phone calls and not have your idol. It's not innocuous and it has power, Right. Because you might mean that thing today when you say, no, I am done. I recognize that I have made that an idol in my life. And you might fall on your face in repentance. But if you walk out the door and your smart computer rings, it has power. And when you answer the phone, if you then get that Facebook notification and you can just quickly, it has power, right? So again, I'm not saying to you, throw your smartphone away. I am saying to you, what are the idols in your life? And maybe there are some actual physical things that you need to get rid of in order to for real, for real, let that go. Because God meant that thing. It is detestable to him. It's not okay to just, oh, I'm so sorry, but then tomorrow do the same thing. He said, don't even desire the materials that that they are made out of. Another implication of this um, 
is just actual wealth. These idols were made out of silver and gold. See, I think that this is a real easy correlation. That's, wealth is a place that many of us have made an idol. It's, a th- it's an idol that the church at large has worshipped. You know today, as well as I know today, that there are churches that have been built around making sure that we are bringing money into the Lord's kingdom. That's the holy way of saying it, right? There are ways that we have worshipped and we have made wealth an idol. Don't even desire it. Don't even bring it into your home. Um, We had a conversation this weekend, um, Pastor David and and one and I, when we were talking about what our conversation would look like. um, And Pastor David said something in passing, and I'm so sorry, this was not on my notes, or I would have double-checked with you, but it's not confidential. But he said something in passing, right, about the fact that, you know, no, God doesn't call everyone to get rid of their money. Indeed, God didn't say to every wealthy person, you don't get to have any money, it's a sin to be wealthy. But if that thing is going to lead you away from God, then you become enslaved by it. And so then the call is give it away, give it all to the poor. Anything that has enslaved you, right? That's another way of anything you've made an idol. So if wealth has become an idol to you, then it's not just enough for you to fall down on on Sunday and say, oh God, I repent. And then on Monday, go look at your bank account and know that you don't really have to depend on God for anything because you've got your money. Perhaps, perhaps you need to seriously pray about what God would have you to do about that. And I'm not going to say anything past that because I've already spoken about your cell phones and you will not walk out of here and say, my pastor told me I have to give all my money away. Although God might tell you that and you should be open, but I did not, that's not what I said. All right. (laughs) So let's go to chapter 12 and just look at verse 31. Um, And this I found amazing. He meant that thing. Not only were they told to destroy the idols, not only were they told not to even desire the materials that the idols were made out of, he says, don't even worship me the way they worship their gods. See, that hit y'all like it hit me, because when I read that, I said that, see, okay, how might we be worshiping our God in the way that the world worships their gods. I think that this should bring a powerful sense of conviction for the American church. I say this often, and I know that I start to sound like a broken record, but it's true. We have way too easily allowed American culture to become Christian culture. We are way too complicit with the idea that this is a Christian nation. And so what happens in any sphere of our society must be ordained by the Lord. It's all Christian. It's all good. How does our worship of God look different than the way the world worships whatever it worships? Money, power. Here's a test. In our congregation, who has authority? In our congregation, the way that we organize ourselves, the way that decisions are made, the people who get to speak and the people whose voices we respect, do they look exactly like the way it looks in the world? 
we're we're a very uh, educated church. Most people in here have a college degree, a, a higher a graduate degree. I'm like, what's the next thing after college? <laughs> Some sort of a master's degree, PhDs. We have all. We're a very educated church. So um, in our congregation, if there was someone who did not have that, do 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 those people have authority here? Do we idolize expert expertise? What does it look like for us? Does our worship look like the world? Because if it does, and as I was preparing this, I felt like, oh, Lord, it might. <laughs> if it does, then we have, have built some idols. And this is a call for us to check ourselves because he meant that thing. Not only were they supposed to destroy the idols, not only were they not to even desire the materials that the idols were made out of, but don't even worship me like they worship their gods. It's detestable to me. The things they do when they worship their gods, they are vile. What are we doing? What have we baptized in our own Christian belief? And so we've decided that it's okay because it's just what we do. Um, I, I'll, sorry, I doing it again too. <laughs> uh, but a while ago, when Pastor David um, preached um, the same sermon series about um, money, there was something that struck me when he talked about savings, and that he had searched scripture, and despite his best efforts and his heart's desire, he had not found anything in scripture that justified savings. But I can name at least five books off the top of my head, not right now because I don't have a lot of words, but if you find me after service, I can name at least five books where Christians have written to you about the best way to save your money, what Christian investment looks like. I'm not going to say that that is wrong necessarily, but what this passage calls me to think about is how might that be a way that we are worshiping like the world worships? How might that be a really holy and nice way that we've decided to make money our God and trust in that for our provision and our security, but just baptize it in Christian language so that we don't have to say it's that? If you take nothing else from that, hopefully this week and in the weeks to come, you will be thinking about what are the places where you have built idols? What are the places where we as a church have built idols? And what is God calling us to do about it? Because he meant that thing. We worship reality TV stars. We worship YouTube. I say that because that's mine. That's, that's mine. We worship Facebook. We worship Twitter. It's not just something that we do because it's fun. We do it so we don't have to think about our lives. We do it so we don't have to deal with the reality of our situations. We do it because that brings us comfort. And so I don't really necessarily want to go to God and pray. I don't know that I believe you're going to bring me comfort, but I know YouTube will make me feel better right now. Maybe I don't want to hear what you have to say because you've been calling me to do some things that I don't want to do. And so I know Facebook will distract me right now. The thing that I want to continue doing, the clothes that I like to continue purchasing for myself, the job that I want to continue to pursue, I know that Twitter will affirm that that is exactly what I should be doing. And so I'm not going to fall on my face before you. That is idolatry. And God hates it. It is detestable to him. And he meant that thing. And so we ought to take it seriously. This is a place where we need to repent. 
there's another implication for these passages. If, if we believe, um, as I do, that all scripture is God-breathed, right? That all of it is useful for instruction. Then not only do these passages say something to us about the seriousness of idolatry, but they also call us to have to think about what does a holy war look like? Is there such a thing? This is where I'm going to conclude. Just think again about that, that policy of haram, not pronounced correctly. That policy of destroying every single thing that is connected to an idolatrous people. This policy that has, we know, in the world's hands and in the church's hands not submitted to God has been used to do atrocious things. But we can't just ignore it. We can't just dismiss it. We can't just gloss over it. We've seen it literally unfold in Israel today, right? There are people right now, there are folk who think that it's okay what we do to the Palestinians because this is the land God gave us, and so we can. We've seen it in genocide after genocide in our own country and throughout this world. So we know that it has real life implications. And as I said, I'm, I feel really confident in saying to you that that's not what God wants us to take from this text. So what does God want us to take from this text? See, we see this all of the time. If you remember when Katrina happened and people said that, that was the Lord punishing, that's the, the, this kind of thought is underlining that. Just recently, when the, when the shootings happened in Las Vegas, I think it's Pat Roberts, the, the old man from the 700 Club. Is that him? It's Pat Robert, right? One of them. So he said that this is happening because we are not respecting our president. <laughs> I found that, I was like, what is happening? This president? I just don't believe that God would allow people to be shot down in the street because we didn't respect Donald Trump. You can pray for me if I'm in here. Um, But this, that's the foundation, right? This idea that we are the people, we go into the land and we can just wipe out anything that doesn't worship or look like what we think it should, Right? That's what underlines this. And if we know that that's not what God is calling us to take from this text, then what should we take from it? See, our enemies today are not the Jebusites and, and, the, and the Parasites and the Hittites and the Canaanites. That, that's not who we wrestle against. It's not um, the Israelites or the Palestinians. It's not even Donald Trump and the conservative white evangelicals that allowed him to become our president. That's not who we war against. But we do war. We are called to go into battle, and I dare say that that battle is holy. But what does God tell us? That our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers and the principalities of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. See, we do go into battle. We are called into war. And so what I take from these verses is that we ought to be serious about that thing because God meant it. When he said, wipe it out, he meant it. No, I'm not wiping out people. I'm not wiping out other folks that look like me. For them, I pray because God desires them to know him in the fullness. He desires them to sit at the same table that we all sit at 
right? Where we as brothers and sisters sit at that heavenly feast and say, thank you, God, for delivering and saving us. So no, I don't fight against them, but we do fight. So the implications of that are that we need to be, get your prayer life together. And when I say get your prayer life together, I don't mean just sit somewhere and shout out to God things you want, because he's not a genie. That's not what prayer is. It's not me sitting down and writing my wish list. My look, Hadassah Michelle Dobson. Oh, I should have talked to her about this too. Sorry. But we're talking one day and we're doing our little prayers. And I noticed that her prayer started to sound like a Christmas wish list. Like literally, it would be like, and God, I hope that I get um, a poly, poly, poly doll. And God, I hope that I also get rainbow. Like, what, what is happening? You can't. That's how we pray though. And so when I listened to her, I thought, when does my prayer life sound like that? When are my prayers just me shouting out stuff I want from God? Your prayer life ought to look like talking to God, reading your word, and listening to what he says. Because we are in a battle. God does despise idolatry. And so not only do we need to tear down the idols in our own lives, but we go to war and we do battle against the powers and the principalities in this dark world. And what that looks like is, God, give me my marching order so that I know where my feet should go. God might direct you to call somebody to write a letter. God might direct you to be at a protest. God might... uh, I met a young man this weekend who walked from here to D.C. because God called him to do that thing. What? When was the last time God called you to do something that you didn't think of on your own, that just didn't make you 100% comfortable, a lot of us would have a hard time answering that question because we don't hear what he says. So the first implication is that we need to get our prayer lives together. The second implication is that we need to read our word. At our school, my children's school, I talk to the kids about hearing from God. And, and my kids have asked me often, what does this sound like when God talks to you? And if we're honest, there's probably a whole lot of people in this room who wonder, what does it sound like when God talks to you? The first way that God talks to you is through his word. <laughs> and the more that you read scripture, the more that you know scripture, the more you can hear him when he speaks it back to you. And we have to take it seriously. I feel 100% certain telling you today that what we should take from this text is not go out and destroy people who don't do it like you do it. I feel really confident. We got a whole lot of, of scripture to back that up. And we, we didn't even see this happen in the Old Testament in the way that God talks about it in some of these verses. So I feel really confident saying to you, that's not what God wants you to do. I feel equally confident saying to you, get your prayer life together. Get your reading of the word life together because God has called us into battle. God does continue to hate and detest idolatry. He meant that thing. And so the last call for us, the last implication of this on our lives, new community, is that we ought to repent. And not not what we do, not like, oh, I'm so sorry, God, for the time that I said those bad things. Please help me not say bad things. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God, but God hates idolatry. 
If there are things that you have elevated above God, that is not going to cut it. It's just, it's not. And it has nothing to do with how expressive you feel when you pray. It doesn't have anything to do with your cultural norms. I, I don't care. Repentance needs to be a little uglier than that. Some of us, I dare say all of us in this room need to fall on our faces before God. It's not something that he thinks is bad. Don't do it. I don't like it. He hates it. He detests it. So much so that he told his people to go and utterly wipe it out. Destroy it. Some of us need to fall on our faces before our God. And so my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for this church (laughs) is that That would be our posture before the Lord. We get really, really, really excited about the prospect of doing things. Somebody saying to us, oh, we're going to put on this event or we're going to go here. I I was so blessed by um, the turnout um, at the the candlelight vigil because I'm like, look at our church. Look at us showing up. And we do. We do that very well. But I. Almost as certain as I am (laughs) about what God wants us to take from these texts, I'm I'm almost equally as certain that if we were to have said, um, we're canceling Bible studies and community groups this week because we're just going to come to the ministry center and repent. We're just going to have, we're going to spend some time in in repentance. I I just, I don't feel like we would have had as great a turnout because we're so busy and we have like our kids need need stuff and, um, and life right? Just life. That's not okay. That's not okay. And so my prayer is that we would not take the posture of God. I know what's right. I know what we're supposed to do. I see injustice in the world. And so that I'm going to go fix it. Our posture would be God. Here I am. Send me. That we would be on our faces. God, I have put so many things above you and before you. I have too often taken myself to you too when I should have taken myself to you. I have closed my ears to you because I don't even open my Bible. I don't even open my mouth to pray. Our posture should be, God, please forgive me. And Holy Spirit, allow me to walk in the right direction. To turn away from that thing, from that idolatry that breaks your heart, that you detest. And then walk in the right direction. Because you are a God of justice, and so, of course, the right direction will be towards justice. You are a God who has written our days. You are a God who created the universe. And so, of course, you know how to deal with the problems that we face. You are a God who so loved the world that you took on flesh and died for us. And so, of course, you know how to reach the people that you so love. And so if we would spend some time talking to you, if we would open our ears and spend some time listening to you, then we trust, oh God, that you won't just have us stand in a circle all day long, but you will send us out into the world that you so loved and that you called us into. That's what we need to be about. That's what it looks like to be a church that cares about justice, not a church that's constantly chasing our solutions, but a church that is constantly chasing after God's heart and God's heart is for his people and his people are not just in this room, but they're outside. And so we know God will send us outside of these four walls, not in our own strength, in his strength, 
Not with our own agenda, but with his. And not with idols. And not worshiping him as the world does. But as a people set apart who know that the sovereign God is the one God. And he is our God. And he orders our steps. He directs our path. Amen. So, Father God, we do repent. Jesus. Jesus. God, we do confess that we, (laughs) in our arrogance, have believed that we know better than you. We confess that in our arrogance, we have believed that we are smarter than you, that we have figured you out, that we don't need you. God, we have prided ourselves for being the kind of people who care about justice, but not caring about the one who is just. We have prided ourselves in being a people who love all people regardless of how they look, and yet we have neglected to worship the God who is love. And so, Lord, we do repent. It is my prayer, O oh God, that you would deliver us from that evil and that you would lead us not into temptation. God, it is my prayer that you would forgive us of our sins and help us to be people who are forgiving. It is my prayer that you would continue to call us, O oh God, continue to tug at our hearts and lead us to quiet times of prayer. And that you would speak to us. You said that your sheep know your voice. And they respond to only you. But God, we confess that we have responded to lots of other things. And often we don't know your voice. We have not learned it. We have not taken time to cultivate an ear that can hear it. And so God, please forgive us of that. Please forgive us, Jesus. Teach us how to pray. Teach us, oh God, how to align our hearts with yours, how to speak words that are not just a list of our wishes, but that are the very words you put in our mouths to speak. Teach us how to hear you, God. You said that you would lead us to streams of living water, God, and so we pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. I pray that that this week, very specifically, that each person that is in here would have a time where they spend reading your word. People whose Bibles have grown dusty, folk who only read scripture when they come to church and they look at the passage of the day. God, I am praying that you would bring us to a place, each and every one of us, to a place where we are more hungry for your word For those of us who read your word on a regular basis, make us even more ravenous, oh God, so that we would spend even more time in prayer, more time in study. Because we know, oh God, that you have called us for such a time as this. And there is nothing about us that can change anything. There is nothing about us that has the power to do anything of value or worth, but in you, all things are possible. So God, root us in you. 
Father, we desire to be your people marching into the land that you have called us, tearing down idols and utterly destroying the powers and the principalities that rule this dark world. So God, please direct our path. Please show us your way and align our wills with yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to um, collect offering now. I'm going to invite the ushers to come. Oh, look at that. Look at the ushers. Come forward. And um, as the offering is going around, I just want to, um, if you are visiting with us for the first time, um, inside of your little bulletin, there is a welcome card. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and filling that out, and then you can put it in the offering basket when it comes around. Um, there's also a prayer card on the other side of that. And so if you are here, um, if there is something that God spoke to you during this sermon, if there is something that you came in here carrying, then I encourage you to please write that down so that we can be praying for you. Now, that gets said, and, and I, I want to, um, like I, I mean it when I say it, really. If you, if you have something that you are praying about, we want to pray for you. And we believe that when we do that, God hears our prayers. And we're not just going to be shouting wishes into the sky. Like we're going to talk to a God who cares for us on your behalf. And so we will be praying that God gives us the very words to pray for you and that his will will be done in your life. Amen. See, that, that's important and that matters. So I, I, if you came in here with a prayer request, please don't leave out of here with the same prayer request and nobody knows it. Um, and if you want to pray with someone during the service, after the service, you can pray with me. Dennis is here. You, I'm sure he would love to pray with you. Pastor David, I'm sure would love to pray with you. And quite, we can all pray with each other. So if there's somebody else you're more comfortable with, then don't walk out of here without asking them to pray with you. Amen. You, you, we get the point, right? Don't. Okay. <laughs> um, I think I'm, oh, yes. I'm going to invite Pastor David to come up and do something. So I don't I just want to reiterate everything Pastor Michelle said just now, that um, repentance is an act of the heart, but it's also an act of the body as well. And, and you and I were called to repent today. And so if there's um, anything that the Spirit is saying to you, that you find a way to do so in your heart, but also with your body as well too. Um, so Lord, now receive this offering and these uh, prayer cards and welcome cards. Uh, continue to knit together the community that you are forming among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll receive the offering now. Um, I have a, uh, as, the, as the offering basket is going around, I have a, um, a video that I want to show to you. And is it, okay. Um, so, so this is uh, uh, Principal Hobbs, who is the principal at Jackie Robinson Elementary School. Uh, this is a school we work very closely with just down the street. Uh, Mama Regina's on the LSC there. And uh, she's someone who we've come to care a lot about. This is the third principal we've worked with at this school over the past seven years or so. And I got to spend about an hour with her a couple weeks ago and just asked her to greet, um, to greet you. Where's your mic? No, no, where's, where's, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. And, sorry, Jeannie, you were like, but, so, and, and Jeannie especially, uh, I asked her to say some, uh, to, to, so you're like ducking down, I didn't see you there. I was like. Um, so, so this is a greeting to you, church. Uh, thanks to you and to Jeannie especially. 
Hello everyone, this is Principal Hobbs of Jackie Robinson Elementary School. I just want to give you a few quick updates about what's going on here at the school. First of all, our focus this year is STEM, which is Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Also, we have Super Kids, which is our literacy program. As a direct result of last year when I arrived here at Jackie Robinson, and the strong focus we had on literacy, our school was able to go to a one plus, which means we went from the bottom to the top. Now our goal is to maintain that growth and to add in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, we have a very strong parent core this year. Woohoo! I'm very excited about that. Uh, we've had a couple meetings and they've given me great suggestions of how to make Jackie Robinson great. Leading into that, I want to say thank you to New Community Covenant Church, Pastor Swanson for an outstanding job, and Jeannie with our fun fair. It was awesome. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and to all the members of the church who support this wonderful effort um, every year for the students of Jackie Robinson. During the fun fair, I was able to register three new students just from them coming by and participating in the fair and the parents were so impressed with what was going on they registered their children and now we have three new um, panthers to or I'm sorry eagles at Jackie Robinson but I want to say thank you it was a spectacular fair um, this year we had so many of our parents that came out and that really helped to jump start the year for us um, the kindergarten parents were so impressed with the fun fair, and they were just like, wow. So I want to say thanks again to um, Jeannie for organizing it. You did an outstanding, fantastic job. The parents were so appreciative of the haircuts that the um, boys received, as well as the backpacks that all students received. And just a wonderful time for fellowship with um new friends and old friends as we began the new school year. So thank you so much. I look forward to working with you guys in the future and have a blessed day. Thank you. Jeannie, can you come up here, please? And church, can we thank our amazing fun fair leader? Come on, thank her. <laughs> this is like year number three of pictures that are signed. So we feel like Third year, we had to do a video, too, uh, and a good excuse for us to hear. Can you raise your hand if you served with Jeannie in any capacity this year at the Fun Hair? Put up high, 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 high. Um, just an amazing, amazing team. And um, Jeannie and Marquita actually met with Principal Hobbs on Friday, right? And just kind of debriefed the Fun Fair a little bit, heard from her how it went, what we can do different, as well as other opportunities. So you'll be hearing from us about that. Um, but we think you're amazing, and I love, like, three, I mean, it, um, just to see what the fun hair has become in three years, and, and to see Jeannie especially have these conversations with the principal about what will be effective, and, and why do we do this, and what needs to be changed, and so that it's continually uh, adapting has just been, I've just been so impressed uh, with that. So can we thank Jeannie one more time, please? Thank you. Okay, so... In my meeting with uh, Principal Hobbs, we had IIT come out, and they did, um, or the Illinois School of Optometry. Um, I think it's different from IIT. But anyhow, we had them come out, and there was a new enroller, en new enrollment, um, and his, he had not like cross-eyed, but he, 
European like walleye, I think that's what it's called, where your eyes are both pointed like in the opposite direction. So if you can imagine trying to focus and trying to like learn how to read and trying to like participate in things where you have to look at things, which is every day, um, the principal was just like, I don't know what to do with this kid because I don't know how to teach him. But because of the fun fair, because of the connection that this one family has made with the Illinois School of Optometry, this little guy is getting glasses, he's getting treated through their program, and he's like blossoming. So it's just, it's just like fabulous. And this is something that she really wanted me to share with all of you um, because she was like, these are tangible, tangible, tangible stories that, that we're, we're like able to, I don't know, share with the community. And so I just wanted to share that and just thank you guys for all your help with everything. That's all I wanted to do. I'm going to invite Pastor Michelle to come up and give us our, our benediction. All right. So I also thank you, Pastor David, for praying for the offering because I completely forgot to do that. Um, but I am going to, I'm going to invite you to stand and receive the benediction. So my, um, my charge for all of us this week is to go from this place knowing that we serve the one true God who is God. And anything in our lives that we are tempted to elevate above him, it is rubbish. (laughs) We don't need it. And so this week, when you feel um, like your heart is breaking, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel the stress of the world, when you feel the weight, it is my prayer that the first thing you will do is turn to the God who loves you. That the first instinct of your heart will be to turn to the one who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And so God, I pray that you would make that so of us, that we would be a people who are dependent, utterly dependent and reliant on you, on your breath for our very life. God, we pray that your word would be our bread. We pray that your presence would be our water and that we would hunger and we would thirst for it. And in the same way that we are greedy about the things that entertain us and distract us, God, make us greedy for you, oh God. God, we pray that you will keep us in perfect peace this week. Not in perfect happiness, but in perfect peace. We pray that the joy of the Lord will be our strength this week. And that you will give us each and every day our daily bread. Make us dependent on you in a way that we feel this week. And God, we will give you all of the praise, you all of the glory, you all of the honor, because you and you alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.